The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is the word of God. William Henry Green was a biblical scholar at Princeton in the 19th century. He said this, Who can tell us whether this awful and mysterious silence in which the Infinite One has wrapped himself portends mercy or wrath? Who can say to the troubled conscience whether he whose laws in nature are inflexible and remorseless will pardon sin? Who can answer the anxious inquiry whether the dying live on or whether they cease to be? Is there a future state? And if so, what is the nature of that untried condition of being? If there is immortal happiness, how can I attain it? If there is everlasting woe, how can it be escaped? Let the reader close his Bible and ask himself seriously what he knows upon these momentous questions apart from the teachings of the Bible. What solid foundation has he to rest upon in regard to matters which so absolutely transcend all earthly experience and are so entirely out of the reach of our natural abilities? A man of superficial faith may perhaps delude himself into the belief of what he wishes to believe. He may thus take upon trust God's unlimited mercy, his ready forgiveness of transgressors, and eternal happiness after death, but this is all a dream. He knows nothing. He can know nothing about it except by direct revelation from heaven. That's true, isn't it? And we can know. Because God has spoken into our troubled lives and our confused world. God has spoken to us from another world. Our needs go deeper than the easy remedies on sale in the marketplace of ideas today. Wittgenstein argued that the sense of the world must lie outside the world. And he was right. No matter how many experts you line up, and how much research you do, and how widely accepted your ideas may become, the ultimate questions of life remain absolutely and forever unanswerable unless God speaks. And God has spoken to us. In plain language, Paul Turnier, the Swiss psychiatrist, worked with many troubled people. And he concluded a diffuse and vague guilt feeling kills the personality. Whereas the conviction of sin gives life to the personality. What is conviction of sin? It's not an oppressive spirit of uncertainty and paralysis and mere guilt feelings. Conviction of sin 
is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out so that healing can begin. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by unkindly confronting us with the light we don't want to see, the truth we're afraid to admit, and the guilt we try to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our dishonesty, our willful blindness, our convenient excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God, opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful judgment of God, declaring war on the false peace we settle for. Conviction of sin is the breakthrough from darkness into light, from attending church into worship, from faking it into really living. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring out over that wound is of the very essence of life. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is confronting us with what we are. Isaiah 1 exposes the reality of the church. Look beyond the advertising. Don't be fooled by the appearances and the polish. God isn't. The unflattering portrait of Isaiah chapter 1 shows us what we really are, as God finds us and convicts us and heals us. God is inviting us here into his gracious newness. He's saying to us, I love you too much to let you remain as you are. The first chapter of Isaiah introduces the whole book. It shows us the before picture, what we are in ourselves. Throughout the rest of the book, God will piece together the after picture, what we will become by his grace. Isaiah 1 describes the problem. The rest of the book, God's remedy. And by the end of Isaiah, what we're looking at is not simply a new and improved version of the church, because God's grace always gives us more than we expect. What we find at the end of the book of Isaiah is a new heavens and a new earth. Paul says in Romans 8, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isaiah 1 deconstructs our self-admiration and opens the way to our true glorification. Now, you see on the back of the bulletin this morning an outline of Isaiah chapter 1. We're just going to look at verses 2 through 9 today. But you can see the structure there. Isaiah is a very carefully crafted piece of literature. At the very least, that is what it is. 
as we'll see as we go through the book. But you see the inner logic of the chapter there. And here we have three views. Remember, the book of Isaiah is a vision. It's a way of seeing. So we begin with three views of God's uncomprehending people. And today, the tragedy of their humiliation. Robert Burns, the poet of Scotland, wrote, Oh, would some power the gift he gives us to see ourselves as others see us. <laughs> but far better to see ourselves as God sees us. John Calvin begins his institutes by asserting that we need to see two things to connect with reality. We need to see God and ourselves. And it's a new self-awareness that Calvin says leads us by the hand to find God. And that's where Isaiah begins. He begins with our most urgent need, a new self-awareness through the conviction of sin. We look at verses 2 through 9. I want you to see three things here. First, in verses 2 through 3, the broken heart of God. Secondly, in verses 4 through 8, the broken strength of the church. And then in verse 9, the unbroken grace of God. And the purpose of this whole passage is to awaken us to our true condition so that our hearts can melt before God's grace under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, verses 2 and 3, the broken heart of God. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I remember watching an interview with the Shah of Iran after he was deposed and exiled. It must have been in the late 70s. And he said, it was so poignant, he said it would take a poet of the stature of a Homer to tell the story of how I was betrayed. But it takes the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, to witness to the enormity of our offenses against God. How dimly we grasp the true significance of our lives. We trivialize our choices. We say it doesn't matter. But God does not trivialize us. He takes us seriously because he can see. Listen, he can see. There is no greater tragedy in the universe than the church in rebellion against God. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. We know from the New Testament that our Father in Christ has adopted us. He has lavished upon us grace upon grace. That's the whole point. Children, I've reared and brought up. But God says we've rebelled against Him. How? Do you feel rebellious? Do I? Rarely. In fact, we may feel more sinned against than sinning, like King Lear. We may feel that God is kind of picking on us sometimes. After all, we're doing the best we can and life is hard. What is God expecting? That very attitude is rebellion. When we think that way, we're proving God's point. Whenever we diminish His claims upon us 
and make peace with our sins and our mediocrity, we are rebelling against God. When we do not hate our sins and love our sin-bearer, we are defying God, which is to say that we are often in open defiance against God. We don't intend to be. It's just the way we are. Underneath our nice exteriors. We settle for a watered-down experience of God. We don't even want that much of God. But we think of ourselves as good Christians because it feels better that way. So we need to hear this truth with unmistakable clarity. And remember that God is speaking here not to that pagan world. God is speaking to His own children. This verse is a cry of pain from heaven. What wounds the heart of God is that we are as rebellious against Him as we are blessed by Him. And the greatest rebellion of all is that we don't even know our rebellion and we don't want to. We don't even want to think about it. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When the children of God are rebelling against their father, Isaiah is saying, they make animals look intelligent. Oxen and donkeys are stupid. But they know enough to go find their master. He feeds them. And here we are, the very children of God, often unmoved by his love for us, unmoved even by self-interest. We wander from one false master to another, hungry, empty, lonely, wondering why our hearts are heavy and why God seems so unreal. But the name Israel, Israel, reminds us that God is willing to bless us. Remember how God changed Jacob's name. He insisted on blessing him. The words, my people, remind us how closely God identifies with us and how much God loves us. So what madness is this? That we treat God, our Heavenly Father, as a problem to work around while we get on with the business of life. That's stupid. More than we want to know, we break the heart of God and injure ourselves. Verses 4 through 8, the broken strength of the church. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Now, there are basically three things there in the first part of verse 4. The prophet sees us as missing the mark a sinful nation, laden down with failures, a people laden with iniquity. Now, applied to our nation today, did you see the article in the Chronicle? It was dated August 26th, a front page article that said, one, as at the end of last year, one in every 32 Americans is inside the correctional system, either in jail or on parole or on probation. One in every 32 our nation is laden with iniquity. What if one in every 32 were an evangelist? A biblical scholar? A leader of revival? 
and going from bad to worse. That's the point of those last two lines. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. In a downward spiral. But, you see, the prophet is not just railing at us. The word ah, at the beginning of verse 4, tells it that this is a lament. This is a cry of anguish. We should hear that tone in the prophet's voice. It's a solemn thing to see the church called to greatness in Christ dissolving into its very opposite. Becoming the opposite of what God wants the church to be and what the world needs the church to be. And Isaiah has the insight to see through the infestation of surface level sins all the way down into the root of it all. Look at the second half of verse 4. Here's the root of it. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged or turned back. Actually, they're in reverse gear. The sins of the heart. I look at the word forsaken. I have forsaken. I look at the word despised. The sins of the heart tell the truth about us. How does the church forsake the Lord and despise the Holy One? How? It's a matter of the heart. To forsake the Lord, here's one way it can be done. To forsake the Lord is to treat Him as the last resort rather than as the fountainhead. To despise God is to disrelish Him. To put a discount on God while valuing other things. And that condition of heart drives His mercies away. That condition of heart deserves eternal hell. Because of who God is. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is both the Holy One and He is our Holy One. Jonathan Edwards explains our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to that being's loveliness, honor, and authority. Therefore, sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If there is any evil in sin against God, it is infinite evil. The sins of homosexuality and murder and theft and so forth, those sins are the merest flea bites compared with forsaking and despising God. The very essence of sin is a distaste for God. One author puts it vividly. For many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. And so we just grind it out. Grind it out. And when we lose our taste for God, we start losing our taste for everything else. 
And Isaiah in this section uses two images to help us see how clueless we are. The first image is that of a beaten man who doesn't feel his own wounds enough to get help. Verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So this man is so beaten up, there's not one square inch on his body, not sore and bleeding. That's the image. But this man doesn't even feel his own pain. So he keeps going back for more punishment and gets beaten up again and again, but never learns his lesson. This is the church. Suffering massive defeats, but never comprehending why or even imagining things could be better. The biggest obstacle to our spiritual progress is that we feel healthy. We feel successful. We do not sense that we're like Rocky at the end of one of his boxing matches. One massive wound all over. We have so little expectation of how health-giving and invigorating and healing God is We do not go into repentance, but keep on forsaking and despising Him, the very one who loves to bind up the brokenhearted, as we'll see in chapter 61. The prophet looks at us with amazement. He says, why? Is it really necessary to go any further in this painful direction? If your aim is to make yourselves miserable, haven't you accomplished that by now? How much misery is it going to take? Wouldn't you rather start to heal? Isaiah's other image, helping us to feel how needy we really are, is that of an invaded country that doesn't see its own humiliation. Now, some interpret these verses, verses 7 and 8, as literal. And they're very close to being literal in Isaiah's historical situation. But if you notice carefully, he uses similes here. So this is another image. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion, that is the people of Zion, the population of Zion, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. The Bible says... That we, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, that's the church at her best. But the church is at times reduced, Isaiah says, to something like a shack in the midst of a field that's been picked over by invading robbers. The church on the defensive. Its influence diminished and shrinking. We need a prophet to tell us that that is not a normal state of affairs. And we should not accept it as such. Helplessness is not God's will for his church. 
The book of Acts shows us what we can become by God's awakening power. He, therefore, is the one we must look to. Do not put your trust in the church. It's just another way of putting your trust in yourself. Put your trust entirely in God, who alone preserves His people. Verse 9, the unbroken grace of God. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's a miracle the church survives at all. And not because God and his gospel are weak. You see here that Isaiah refers to him as the Lord of hosts. He's omnipotent. The reason why the church remains is not that we are faithful Christians. The only reason that we do not stoop to the Sodom we are capable of is that God has determined to preserve his church for himself. It's the very point Paul makes from this passage in Romans chapter 9. God sees where we would go, left to ourselves, and in great sovereign mercy, stretches out his hand and says, No, I will not let you go that far. But apart from God's preserving grace, every church on the face of the earth would relive the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only reason why we are still here is the overruling mercy of God. This passage gives us prophetic eyes. It's a way of seeing, an insight, new eyes to see the broken heart of God the broken strength of the church, and the unbroken grace of God. In his word, God says to us in the book of Deuteronomy, See now that I, even I, am he. In other words, I'm the one to be reckoned with. I'm the reality that's important in your life. And there is no God beside me. Listen. He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That is the God with whom you and I have to deal. He can wound you, or he can heal you, and he'd rather heal you. Why should you be wounded any further? It is not necessary, and here's the reason why. Someone else has been wounded too. A substitute. Jesus was wounded for us in our place. Isaiah is going to say, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
we turn away from self-salvation toward substitutionary salvation. Our wounds are healed by His wounds. Now, we started out talking about conviction of sin because this is a convicting passage. But this is the thing you've got to see. You can feel convicted of a million sins without experiencing any healing. The only conviction of sin that ends up healing you is when you see how you have despised and forsaken the very one who died to save you. Conviction of that ultimate sin is what opens up healing for all our other sins. Will you confess to God your involvement in that ultimate hell-deserving sin, the sin of distaste for your Savior. If you will, then He will start binding up your broken heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the lance piercing the infection. Perform that healing surgery upon every one of us. Take away our taste for sin and impart to us a joyful taste for our sin-bearer. Do this lest we die like Sodom and Gomorrah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.